The Seahawks had their bye this weekend, resting up and getting healthy for the rest of the season. That begins with a big game against the Cincinnati Bengals. Joining us to preview that matchup and lend his insight into the progress, vibes, and injury updates for Seattle is Seahawks senior reporter John Boyle. Let's light him up. I'm Jackson Bevins, and this is Cigar Thoughts. Welcome back to the Cigar Lounge. I am Jackson Bevins, and along with my dulcet-toned producer, Mike Barwin, this is the Cigar Thoughts Podcast. Mike, how are we doing today? Oh, baby. Every uh, every time you point at me, there are three fingers pointing back at yourself, buddy. So. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing well, Jackson. How are you? Oh, I'm good, man. You know, it was our bye week, too, and it was nice to catch my breath. I know it was for you as well. I got to spend all day rotting in front of Red Zone, putting the patio furniture in the garage. I'm feeling rested and ready. Yeah, I was uh, I was on the road yesterday, so I didn't get to catch any of the games in full. But uh, from what I saw, um, fairly entertaining slate of games. I think my biggest takeaway, which has been confirmed week after week, is that there are really no layups in the NFC West. We thought nope. the Rams were going to be better than the general consensus, but the Cardinals aren't lying down at all for anybody. No, man. And and we're going to talk a little bit about that with uh, John today because, man, you're absolutely right. There's the two teams at the top that we kind of anticipated would be there. And then after that, it starts to get a little jumbled. And it's it's one of those things where we said it leading up and it's so true, but I usually despise bye weeks this early in the season for the Seahawks because the stretch of the season afterwards is so long and uninterrupted but seattle has taken a lot of bullets early in the year and an off week came just in time so we're going to get updates on the team's health and a lot more with our guests today but before we do that a quick reminder that we've got our own cigars now and they're really good they're getting into more and more people's hands and it was cool uh, i went to play golf on saturday and three different people at the course came up to tell me that they gotten some of these cigars and that they were really enjoying them so Cool to see, you know, out in the wild, not just the feedback we've been getting online, but uh, real people smoking these cigars and and really liking them. And for those who don't know, we partnered with one of the most prestigious cigar manufacturers in the world to release the official Cigar Thoughts cigars, which you can order directly from CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Just follow the link to get these easy-to-smoke stogies rolled with 13-year-aged premium Dominican tobacco leaf, or hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, and we'll send you the details directly. The feedback on these, as I mentioned, has been awesome. We've said it before, but a box of these cigars would normally go for between $350 and $400, but our partnership allows you to get your own bundle of 10 for just $169, which is less than half of MSRP. And the cigars come with a Bovita humidification pack and a Mylar storage bag to make sure they stay fresh whether you have a humidor or not. We also appreciate the love y'all have given our YouTube channel, which is one of the best ways you can help Cigar Thoughts grow. So we're grateful for the few seconds you can take to subscribe and like the videos. Well, Mike, the Seahawks face what's essentially a four-month stretch without a break now. I really hope they made the most of this rest week because that is a perilous march, and it begins with the Bengals team that looked like their old selves again yesterday. Fortunately, we get to talk to a man who is as close to the epicenter of this team as anyone. He is the senior reporter for the Seattle Seahawks, and we're always thrilled to get his insights. He is John Boyle. 
John, thanks for coming in. Hey, thanks for having me, Jackson. It's always fun to talk to you guys and nice to do it coming off a relaxing bye week. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, I, I say relax. I got three kids. Nothing's relaxing. <laughs> right. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, you know, it's it's good that you mentioned that because I think a lot of us look at a team's buy and just sort of file it away as this rest week without giving it too much extra thought. I know I have spent most of my fandom doing that, but you've been around this team for a long time. You've seen how Pete Carroll and the organization approach the off week. Talk to us a little bit about what this two-week stretch looks like for the team, knowing that they didn't have to play on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, obviously, is just as you said, it's a break, both physically and mentally for these guys. I mean, you think, oh, it's only four games into the season, but they've been going nonstop since the beginning of really the end of July, beginning of August. So it does, you know, Bobby Wagner made a good point. Every year, the bye, when you look at the schedule, you're like, oh, I don't like that. It's too early, too late. And that seems to feel like the right time when it comes. And in this case, this team, a lot of it's just getting healthy. I mean, we've seen all the injuries on the offensive line. They're dinged up other places. So I think it's just good timing in that sense. It's obviously going to be rough on the back end of this when you're playing, you know, what is it, 13 straight games and hopefully playoffs without a break here. But yeah, it's it's a good time for guys to just, you know, a lot of guys go home, spend time with family, just recharge it a little bit, maybe go to their college and catch a football game, things like that. So it's mostly just about giving guys a break and getting healthy and then they'll dive back in. You know, a normal Monday is just a recovery day and meetings, but they'll actually practice today. They call it a bonus Monday. So they get an extra day of work this week, which is helpful. Yeah, I, I got to imagine so. I mean, and I'm glad that you mentioned that it's not just four games in a row that they've played. It is everything that leads up to the season. Like it is hard work on your body and on your mind. And I think it's easy to forget the mental uh, exhaustion, I'm sure, that goes into getting up to speed and all of the film work and the homework and knowing the playbook and adjustments that are being made and all of that stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's it's exciting to see that this team has won as many games as they have coming into this break, uh, despite the injuries. I mean, they're three and one. It's remarkable. Yeah. Not only because of the relative youth of the team, but like you mentioned, they've gotten really banged up so far this season. And let's, let's start with the offensive line. They essentially finished the giants game with five backups out there. I mean, I know Evan Brown's a starter, but he had to move off of his center position to play guard to bring in uh, Olo Atimi. So how close to returning are guys like Charles Cross, Abe Lucas, Phil Haynes, Damian Lewis, and everybody? Yeah, I mean, we'll know more when we hear from Pete Carroll later today, so I don't want to like make any bold predictions. But it did sound like just in you know general terms that they were hoping to get a lot of guys back. I know Charles Cross has been kind of pushing. Um, I do believe that um, Abe Lucas has another week on IR before he can right. enter the conversation here. But um, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not going to, again, make predictions till we hear a little more and see practice, but I do think we'll get, you know, a better looking version of that line. But it's, I mean, shout out to Andy Dickerson. I mean, what they've been able to do, man, with, as you said, I mean, four backups and your only starter from week one is playing out of position at the end of that game. It's been very impressive the way they've functioned. And, you know, they haven't always gone out and dominated, but just to, you know, we saw the other side of that when an offensive line has a bunch of injuries and can't function with the Giants and you get 11 sacks. So it's uh, it's pretty impressive what they've been able to do to keep that line running. Yeah, yeah. I think it was, uh, what would it have been? It would have been after the Lions game, you know, and they're giving out the game balls in the locker room. And, you know, Pete Carroll just leads with Jake Kern and, and Stone Forsyth, you know. And, oh, yeah, he was so fired up about that. Oh, my gosh. How how could you not be? I mean, we <laughs> we were all clenching our teeth 
pretty tight going into that game, especially with a guy like Aiden Hutchinson on yeah. on the other side. It was and, loud and the, in that building. Credit the oh line my gosh. It was loud as hell. Yeah, man. And and not only played well, like they won and and they were really crisp at the end of the game on that game winning drive in overtime when everyone's exhausted. They were still out there winning. And you know, they carried it through, had a pretty good game against the Panthers, had a pretty good game against the Giants, and pretty good with that much reserve talent out there as opposed to, you know, your projected starters. That that's huge. So I'm glad you mentioned Andy Dickerson because I would say that has been the biggest surprise for me so far this season. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's one thing, you know, go back to whatever, late July, early August, and Pete Carroll talked about the offensive line depth and being excited about how they feel like they got, you know, all these, all this depth starting caliber guys. You know, it's one thing to say it in August. It's another thing to, you know, kind of have it play itself out through the course of three plus games and guys getting the job done. So once they do start getting a bunch of guys back, you're going to feel really good, not just about the frontline guys, but that your depth has been, you know, gotten that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And on the other side, you know, they've been dealing with some stuff on defense as well. The the heartbreaking one for me, I'm a Jamal, Jamal Adams guy, yeah. man. I, I just, is he a perfect football player? No, but he is a football player through and through. And, you know, everyone, you can't make it to this level of football without being an intense individual. People display that intensity in different ways. And with Jamal, it's so apparent. It's so obvious how badly he wanted to be back out there on the field with his guys. And I think a lot of people don't understand what he went through after that injury, spending months in a straight leg cast, needing to get help with some of the basics of life, all of that stuff. He obviously only made it about five minutes in his return before leaving with concussion. He was very animated about being told he couldn't go back in that game. Do you get the sense that he is progressing through the concussion protocol so far? Do we have any updates on that? Yeah, again, no no updates since last week, and it'll be again. Let's see, you know, what happens when they get out on the practice field. But, you know, in general, a lot of these concussions, guys maybe miss one game and are back for the next one, which with that timeline with the bye would put him back. Pete Carroll said, you know, last week after the Giants game that he thought he'll be back, but we'll see what happens. I mean, there are cases of concussions lingering, but the hope is he's back, he's ready to go, and you're right. I mean, that's just tough to see. That guy... Yeah, I mean, there are a few guys more just passionate who love this game than him and that comeback from that torn quadriceps tendon, that is not a common injury. I mean, you Google that, like there are not a lot of guys who deal with that enough to come back from that. And it was a long comeback. Um, and for him to then get hurt a few plays in that game is tough. So hopefully we see him back and it just makes the defense a lot more exciting when he's out there that, I mean, the secondary in general has been a fascinating group going back to camp and, there's a lot of talent there and they've done some good things, but we've yet to really see him at full strength for any stretch of time, whether it's, you know, the Witherspoon injury and then Reek gets hurt and Jamal, obviously. So it's going to be a lot of fun when, whenever that day comes that we get to see all those guys together. Yeah. Cause we've heard so much over the last year plus about kind of the linchpin quality of Jamal Adams to this defense. And, and we'll dive into the defense a little bit more here in a bit, but you know, you, you mentioned the depth of the offensive line and, Pete kind of trumpeting, hey, we feel like we have more than five starters right now. And it's looking a lot more that way than I anticipated, which is remarkable because most teams, I mean, most teams don't have five starting quality offensive linemen, period. You know, it's just, there's just not enough to go around. But on the defensive side, 
this team really has some depth too, and especially in the secondary. I mean, they just kept loading up on defensive backs this offseason. And <laughs> damn, man, they they need them. I mean, you know, I, I used to be far more on the side of, look, you win with outlier top-tier talent. So I was I was in favor of the trades for Percy Harvin and Jimmy Graham and Jamal Adams and, you know, making moves for guys who are at the top of their position and, and paying top of the line money to keep guys, you know, like the LOB and, you know, Marshawn and Russell Wilson around because it's so hard to get that top tier talent. But as injuries continue to accumulate, as the season has gotten longer, uh, I've become far more in favor of building depth. And I'm really, really impressed with, with what they've done because just in the secondary alone, I mean, what, what do we got? We got Jamal out. Kobe Bryant has been out. Trey, uh, Trey Brown, out. Artie Burns. I mean, that's that's a lot Re- of snaps to fill. Half. Yeah, I mean, it's a game right. of three quarters, really. So, and you miss Witherspoon for the opener. So, it's yeah, I mean, we talked about how deep and tough that competition was in camp, and you've seen it pay off where you you feel like whoever's in there, you can play and, and be pretty good. So, We'll see what, you know, what I'm, I'm still curious to see what it looks like when they finally get everybody available, but, uh, it's, they did a hell of a job building that group. Yeah. No kidding, man. No kidding. And it, it does feel like overall from like a vibe standpoint, this team is really loose this season, like more so than any, I can remember in a long time. And you know, that's my impression. Of course, I'm a couple of degrees removed. You're much closer to the heartbeat, but from my perspective, this seems like a pretty free flowing group. Uh, and you know, even last year you had all the outside expectations of a rebuilding season, new QB, all that stuff. The years prior, you had the tension between Russell Wilson and the team, the phasing out of the LOB era guys had some high profile contract disputes, etc. Is it just me or does this particular group have a different vibe than some of the ones preceding it? No, I think that's totally accurate. And I'd say it goes back to last year. I mean, it's, uh, you mentioned the expectations were not high externally, and I think that team fed off it. It was a young, you know, you infused this team with a lot of you with a lot of youth last year. And look, I'm not going to speak disparagingly about anybody right now, but when you have both Russell Wilson and Bobby Wagner move on, it opens mm-hmm. up. Th- those guys were such big presences in the locker room and leadership wise. It gives all these other guys a chance. And people with Bobby coming back, he's talked about, it and other guys on defense have talked about, it. like it kind of creates a. a place for younger guys a Jordan Brooks or even a veteran like Quandary Diggs to kind of lead in a different way. And now Bobby comes back and he's kind of feels like he's more just fitting in than having to be. I mean, obviously he's mm. the leader. He's Bobby freaking Wagner. Can we swear on this? Anyway, he's Bobby <laughs> right. Wagner. So he comes in and he's a presence, but yeah, it just, it felt different last year. It was just free. It was loose. They knew a lot of people were counting them out and they fed off of that. And then it's, it really just continued over. And Pete Carroll's been talking about it all along. This kind of just feels like building off last year. I mean, I, I'm lucky enough to to get to be in some of the team meetings, you know, in that very first one in training camp, just that energy of Pete and he feels it. And he just feels like this group has a, a chance to capture something special that he's not going to compare it to the teams a decade ago in terms of talent. And he's not right. predicting the Super Bowls, but just sort of that young up and coming energy of those groups. I think he senses that and feels like there's a chance for this team to be pretty special, not just this year, but just sort of building something to move forward. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about Bobby Wagner a little yeah. bit because I think this is such a fascinating thing. And you've been there for most, if not all, of Bobby Wagner's career. What was the feeling when he left the building? Like when it got announced that he 
<laughs> he was gone. You know, the last remaining member of the Super Bowl team and, and you know, the heart and soul of that defense for a decade couldn't contrast that feeling of not having him there to how it felt when he came back. Yeah. I mean, I think everyone understood the business side of it, you know, just contracts and the way that happens. But it was tough. I mean, both just you talk to people around the building, just employees, like you felt that. And then obviously the locker room, it's, he was such a big presence on the team. And, uh, past tense, he's still here. But at the time, it felt like you know, he's yeah, yeah. an iconic figure. I mean, one of you, I mean, you're going to be able to make an argument when he retires. He's the greatest Seahawk ever. When you line up his accomplishments, the team accomplishments, all the honors, I mean, he's a Hall of Famer. So what he Dude, I was team, having this conversation yeah. with some buddies a couple of weeks ago. Like, it's time to start putting him kind of up there. I, I mean, who you got? You got, you know, think, uh, you know Walter Walter's Jones, probably the most dominant. When you look at like greatest at his position, dominant at his peak, it's hard to go against him. But I mean, you look at Bobby Wagner is more all pros and pro bowls in any one team history. He is at the center of some of the best defenses of NFL history and the only team to win a super bowl so far in franchise history. So Again, I, I would ha be happy to listen to any argument for Tez, Walter Jones, Steve Larger. I mean, there's going to be a lot of guys you can put in that conversation, but Bobby is right up there. Man, I know. It. I know. He's he's on the rush more, for sure. I mean, look at how he's playing right now. He's got a great shot at adding to those honors because he's, I mean, this is, get back <laughs> he to right. But he's, I mean, <laughs> second highest graded inside linebacker by pro football focus. He's insane. Before the bye week, he was second in the league in tackles. He's, you know, getting sacks. And the leadership, I mean, you could make a strong case they don't win that Lions game without him and it has nothing to do with play, yeah. but as I'm sure you guys read about and heard about, like, what he did that week when that team was just kind of lingering, a little, little funk hanging over that tough loss where they just laid an egg in the second half against the Rams, and Bobby got the team. I mean, I've been to a lot of practices, and I've never seen a pre-practice Wednesday. I'm huddling up the team and giving a big fiery speech, but that's what the team needed, and I, you know, I think that helped him win that week. So you look at all those things he's doing, and he still has... It's not just like, hey, let's bring bring the old guy back for a farewell tour. Like he is still a vital piece of this defense. Yeah, man, and it, it speaks to the culture that he could leave and go to oh, yeah. a division rival and and come back and and have it be hugs and daps and like, yeah, man, we we need you. We are really happy to have you here, and you're important. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we could have a whole podcast just on the culture side of it. But yeah, I mean, the guys we've seen who get either released or traded or leaving free agency that you think this didn't end so well, you know, there's some hard feelings, whatever. And you wouldn't think they'd want to come back here. And the guys that do either in their playing career, or if it's, you know, just a Richard Sherman who I don't know anybody who is more fiery and might be apt to hold a grudge that I've covered than Richard Sherman. Yep. He got released while recovering from a torn Achilles. Like if you just said, who's not going to want to deal with this team, it had been him. And yet last year he's back there essentially coaching up Reek Woolen. He's back here, you know, talking to guys. He's at practices. He's, you know, he's around. And it's, you know, I'm sure there's still a little part of him that's bitter about things because that's just how Sherm is. But it it goes really far to show just kind of what Pete and John have built around here, that it's it can be bigger than it, you can overcome those things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad we're talking about these defensive players because when the Seahawks were last on the field, this defense was threatening all sorts of franchise records for uh single game shit against the new york giants i mean they recorded 11 sacks they held new york under 250 yards the defense scored more points than they allowed yeah. like there was a lot of consternation about this defense coming into the season and through three games i'd say most of it was justified 
But that game was just so incredible on that side of the ball. How much of what we saw in New York feels like an outlier? Because obviously no defense is going to do that every week. Yeah. And how much of it is proof of concept that the implementation of Clint Hurt's defense is successful? Yeah, look, I mean, you're not going to get 11 sacks every week. That team was missing guys. They didn't have Saquon Barkley. So, you know, they're going to be tested more than that game. But I do think a lot of what we saw is real. To me, the biggest things that, you know, make me think that they're closer to that defense than what we saw against the Rams in week one is as the secondary gets healthier and comes together, I just think, you know, I, I don't want to put too much on one rookie, but what a guy like Witherspoon adds, how sticky he is in coverage, how dangerous he is as a playmaker, and you get him and Reek Wollen out there, like, it's going to get to the point where teams are just going to have a hard time throwing outside, period, or inside if he's at nickel. But um, if you have two guys who teams just don't want to throw at, that shrinks the field a lot. We used to always see it with Richard Sherman of, you know, team, people want to criticize like, oh, he's not traveling with the team's best fear. But what he is doing, he's just taking away half the field. And that's a huge deal yeah. that handicaps an offense. So as the coverage gets better and then the pass rush is going to continue to, I, I think there's, you know, you don't want to have growing pains, but when you change out all three of your frontline starters, your, your defensive linemen, it takes those guys time pass rushing. There's a lot of chemistry involved and those guys yes. play off each other. And we saw, you know, the first six quarters of the season, I think they had two quarterback hits, no sacks. And then you look at the numbers now, I think before this weekend, they were tied for the league lead in sacks or right up there. And, you know, depending on who who you look at for pressures, they were right up there among the leaders in that. According to PFF, they were first in the NFL in pressures. Yeah, that's what, 98 through through the first four games. So (laughs) That's such an insane number. Yeah. Well, I mean, those came in back-to-back games. So, again, I know that's sustainable. They're 36 (laughs) in in two games in a row. I don't know you just sustained that all year, but I do think it's real that they are better. And they've got a lot of different guys that can do it. And I mean, like, adding, suddenly Boye Mafe is emerging as like this legit edge guy Dude. after, you know, he had a solid rookie year, but he, you know, he didn't jump out at guys a lot. So looking at what he's doing, and Uchenno and has just been awesome since he got here. So I really like that group, and I think they're just growing. So look, I mean, the real test we know is going to come later when they got to play the 49ers. They got to see the Rams again and the Eagles on the team. So it's going to be interesting to see how they grow up to that. But, and shoot, it lo- looks like maybe Joe Burrow's getting back to Joe Burrow. So that'll be a good test this week as well. But it's, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I think, again, I think it's a lot more real than not from what we saw. It's not going to be 11 sacks and three points every week, but I do think we're seeing a, a defense kind of come into itself here. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about this kid, man. Devin Witherspoon just seems like a supernova. And anyone listening to the show knows that I've seen this in his range of outcomes leading up, even with him taking a while to sign and then getting hurt and missing the opener. I was just like, guys, I I think there's someone special here. I did not expect to see this this early. Who Who is the last rookie you saw come in and have this much of an immediate impact, not only on the field, but from like a potential stardom standpoint as Devin Witherspoon? I don't know. Like, I mean, like Sherm didn't start until midway through the season and that was because of a bunch Mm -hmm. of injuries. They're different players, but maybe Earl just in terms of draft, you know, like high expectation, high end picks starting right away. And just, you could see it like, yeah, there's maybe some rough edges here and there, but he's a special talent. I'm trying to think. I mean, they've had other rookies start right away, obviously, but just that it was so clear so early that this guy is going to be special. It's, yeah, I mean, maybe Earl would be about the only comparison I can make. Yeah, certainly on defense. I'm actually... (laughs) Offense, I think I'd point to Russ because you knew, I mean, 
you watch that guy in the preseason, and you're like, holy crap, how'd they get yeah. this guy in the third round? Yeah. He was so special. But on defense, it's probably Earl is the closest comparison. Again, different players, different positions, but just the very clear, like, this guy has it, whatever it is. It, that was sort of, that's sort of what I see there. Yeah, I, I appreciate that you mentioned Earl. We had Dick Fane on last week, and that's the exact comparison that I made. I remember going to the first home preseason game uh, the year that he was drafted, so that would be 2010, and they were playing the Titans. And <laughs> I remember there was a play where Earl was lined up on the left hash, and they threw like a 10-yard out to the other side of the field, and he made the tackle. And I I remember looking at my buddy and just being like, how? How was that possible? And Witherspoon's the first player I've seen since then to have that ability to immediately diagnose a play and then just get there, just get there. When we had Stacey Ross on, she was talking about how uh, her co-host Michael Bumpus used the word geometry to talk about Devin Witherspoon in terms of just having this innate ability to understand angles, cut out all the wasted movement. And that's great. That's an amazing talent to have. But then to bring thunder the way that he does when he gets to the ball. I mean, he's not... He's not there just to wrap up and make a tackle or just to bat a pass away. He's looking to pick it off or he's looking to make you remember his name. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for, for his size, you wouldn't think physicality was a huge part of his game as a cornerback, but man, he hit, I mean, we all saw the the running play there where he just came in and between just, the tackles. Yeah. Man. Just smack the running back, sent him staggering back. So it, and that's, I mean, we can have a whole other conversation about this, but I think that's why they like him at nickel so much. We'll see if he stays there when everybody's healthy. Or I was going to ask. He can, you know, there's plays he's going to be able to make. I mean, he got that, the sack off of blitz playing nickel. I mean, the pick he was in the slot. So there's just a lot of times more opportunities to be around the ball. And I mean, the famous comparison Pete Carroll made date the day they drafted him was Troy Polamalu, who's obviously a safety, but a guy who's around the line of scrimmage a lot and just able to kind of just wreck things that way. So we'll see. I don't know, you know, if they liked what they saw so much there, they're going to stick with that. Or if they want to mix him out, you know, move him outside, but it's, the Again, fact that he can I, do I both is also yeah, special. Yeah. It, I mean, for a guy who's not just a rookie, but a rookie who missed a lot of camp and a lot of the preseason that he's still ready to you know play. Those are very different roles. I mean, you, you say both are cornerbacks, but they're very different jobs in this league. Extremely. So it's, yeah. It, we can yeah, talk about him all day. I mean, he's so funny. I know. I know. You know, honestly, uh, I, I think you're right about Earl. I think you're right about Russ in terms of guys who have had a similar impact from just a make the rest of the league sit up and take notice and, mm-hmm. and make fans of other teams be aware of them. The other guy I think since then was probably DK Metcalf. You know, yeah. uh, I remember in his, his first game, he had a hundred yards and a touchdown and then continue that through a season. And, and obviously had that insane game set all of Seattle's postseason single game receiving records against the Eagles uh, uh, that year. And, and I think there's a lot of similarities in those guys, not just in terms of understanding what it takes to be good on the field, but showing the commitment to refining their game and also kind of embracing the bright lights mm-hmm. and and not being afraid of the fact that, like, yeah, you're going to know my name. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got that. Uh, again, I don't like to compare eras, but like you could have plugged Devin Witherspoon in the in the yes. Legion of Boom era defenses and like that swagger, the confidence he would have fit right in with those guys. I mean, he's got that edge to him that, I mean, Pete and John love those kind of guys. And I, 
that's a big factor. I mean, when you're picking a guy at number five, everything matters. Like you're looking at everything about him, but I'm sure that was a big factor why they loved him is like, he's got that mentality that is going to just make him great and make him, you know, it'll guys feed off that it's contagious on the team. Yeah. You know, last season we started almost every show when breaking the team down, talking about the offense and this year it's least last few weeks. It's been about the defense, but I do want to switch over to the offense because, you know, a lot of their numbers aren't jumping off the page. Uh, and and part of that is they they fell apart, obviously, in the second half of the game against the Rams. And then last week, they didn't need to do a whole lot. They didn't look amazing, but they were certainly good enough to get the lead and then just lean on the Giants. And, and they weren't having to go for the explosive plays as much as we saw against the Panthers and the Lions. But... Overall, I mean, given that the numbers aren't necessarily where they were on a per game average last season, how do you feel about this team? How how is the offense clicking right now? I mean, it's you're right. I mean, the numbers aren't quite where they were, but uh, you don't want to make injury excuses. But when you look at what they've been doing with that offensive line, mm-hmm. I feel really good about this offense still because it's to me if you're kind of surviving offensive line injuries and getting through till their guys are back which is they I feel like they've done more than that I mean you scored 37 points in back-to-back games without your starting tackles <laughs> last yeah, week because you yeah. said they didn't necessarily they didn't necessarily need a huge offensive game but they got enough done you even had your backup quarterback come in and leave right. a touchdown drive which is great but um I mean Geno Smith still looks like Geno Smith to me and like a guy who can be really good and lead game winning drives as he did and then you know we haven't seen much from Jackson Smith and Jigba yet, but I am still very high on him. So I think when you get him going, that's going to be a factor. The tight ends have been phenomenal. Oh my gosh. You look at what all three of those guys are doing and shout out to Shane Waldron, the way he's scheming things up. I mean, I think for years, Seahawks fans, maybe look at other teams around the league and in this division, like why do they just have these guys running wide open and we don't. And like, that's what we're seeing out of the tight ends is like you're scheming dudes wide freaking open for 15, 20 yard gains. And that's, that's great when you can get that going. And they're also helping in the run game, helping pass protect with these tackles out. So love what those guys have done. And I, you know, I, I think the run game is really good. Charbonnet hasn't got a ton of opportunities, but I like him. Oh my gosh. Walker, yeah. his, his numbers aren't great yet outside the touchdowns, but I, I love what we've seen out of Walker in terms of he's just been a little more decisive this year. I mean, he's still going to bounce around and do some crazy stuff, which is fun, but there's been a few runs. I can't remember when it was, but there's one run in the game last in the giants game that was one of, to me, one of the best runs I see on him because it wasn't spectacular, but he just hit a hole and just kind of plowed his way through. And it was like maybe a 10 to 15 yard gain where it's like, okay, that's like, that's the maturation of Ken Walker of knowing when the time to do that is. So I think overall, once you start getting the offensive line healthy, this offense can be a truly elite group. And if we go back to the defense, if they're playing better, that's where, you know, last year you had times where the offense was great and the defense just wasn't doing their part. But if you get both these sides going, that's where this team can be right in that upper echelon of teams. Yeah. And and that's what it's going to take because the teams at the top of this conference do that. <laughs> saw that you know? I mean, yeah. it's, yeah, yeah, it's a steep hill to climb. We're going to talk a little bit more about that here later on in the show, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned JSN because he's the next guy I wanted to talk to you about. But you know, you also mentioned Gino, and it, it, I <laughs> the the overwhelming theme of this team so far to me is their depth. We have had to see so many reserves play meaningful snaps, including Drew Locke. Gino obviously was able to come back into that game, but a lot of that is you know sideline treatment. A lot of that is adrenaline. Is there any 
uh, word about there being a, a lingering issue with Gino's leg after that tackle that he sustained? Nothing I've heard. And, uh, you know, again, same caveat. We haven't heard from Pete Carroll yep, yet. Yep, we haven't of course. seen him on the practice field. But, you know, I, I do look at it this way. When you're a Pro Bowl quarterback, if something was more serious a week afterwards, I feel like somebody would have sniffed that out right, right now. So right. we haven't seen any of the, those national scoop guys report anything is probably encouraging, but yeah, I, you know, I, I, they check these guys out and those, those trainers and doctors are really good. And I just can't imagine if there was anything legitimately wrong and at risk, they would have let him back in that game, especially with it going the way it was. So I think, yeah. you know, maybe, maybe you rest him a little bit this week if he's a little swollen and sore, but it sounds like he came out of that fine. Oh, that's good, man. And you know, to your point, it is really nice to know that this is an offense that's can score 37 points when the game demands it. Yeah. I mean, they, they needed to score those points to get those two wins in the middle. And it's, it's encouraging to know that is within their range of outcomes. Maybe it's not as simple as saying, you know, they've got a 37 point game on speed dial, but it does feel like when they have the ball, they're more likely to put points on the board than they are to punt. In fact, I think, I don't, I don't know how it is after yesterday's game, but I think Seattle was punting on the second fewest uh, percentage of their possessions behind only the 49ers. So, I mean, they really are out there getting first downs and they're not relying on converting third downs to do that because they haven't been very good at third downs. They're just avoiding third downs, which is what I have been like begging and pleading for. And I think a lot of that has to do with the tight ends. You talked about how good they've been as a group, but you remember when Shane Waldron was with the Rams and Seattle would play them, Gerald Everett and Tyler Higbee kicked Seattle's asses with their little slip routes and their crossing routes and the way they'd come across uh, formations on running plays like Colby Parkinson did on that Ken Walker run that you're talking about where he's lined up left the entire offensive line shifts left and he sprints across the formation to pick up the free rusher on the right side stuff like that to have two or three guys at any given time who can do that opens up so much for the team the challenge with that though is now you have a third really talented wide receiver. Mm-hmm. And it has not been the statistical start to the career that I think anybody really expected for Jackson Smith and Jigba. I think most people understand that any position in the NFL, but especially wide receiver, there is an acclimation process that is different uh, than a lot of positions when you go from college to the pros. But it's also an adjustment for Shane Waldron, who has built his entire career around heavy sets. 12 and 13 personnel. And there hasn't ever really been a third wide receiver on one of his teams that is demanding playing time, demanding targets. Do you feel like there is an adjustment period for Waldron and the offensive coaching staff as well in terms of learning how to fit JSN into this offense, how to draw up plays for him? Yes and no. I mean, there there were stretches of those Rams teams when they, depending on the personnel they had, where they played just a ton of 11 personnel and, and did rely on a lot of three receiver sets when you had you know, that was kind of, you felt like more of a strength. And I I would say probably the tackle injuries have factored into this as well. Like you're going to sure. play more 12 and 13 personnel when you're missing both your starting tackles. That's just kind of the nature of the game. Yeah. And when you do that, a guy like JSN, it, it lowers his playing time. So I, you know, again, I, I have zero worries about him long-term. I think he's going to be a great player. There's going to be a game coming up here where he's, he's called upon, whether it's, just because they play a ton of 11 personnel or maybe a team really just focuses on shutting down Tyler and DK and there's going to be opportunities. So I'm sure he wishes he was more involved right now. And I'm sure the team wants to get him more involved right now, but 
I think as the season goes along and guys get healthy at tackle and maybe they can get him out there a little more, he's going to have some big games coming up here. Because, I mean, we we all saw it in training camp and before he got... Oh, my gosh. He, he was, was like the best player in... Tra- well, you you were there every day, but to, from my perspective, he was the best player on the team in yeah, training camp. I mean, it, it does. I mean, you talk about like going back to rookies who make an impact. There, you know, the names we mentioned, we were talking about game impact. But when you just talk about guys who show up and practice as rookies and you're like... Oh yeah, that guy. I mean, DK did that for sure. He came in his first year. He's like, yeah, that guy is legit. And Jackson Smith and Jake were different player in DK, but he looked like uh, again one of the best players on that offense when he was out there. And I think he will get back to being that. So it's just a matter of time to me, and we'll see when that happens. But yeah, I, it's not. I don't look at his production. I, I do think also this is a whole other conversation. But fantasy sports plays a huge dude like, way we evaluate this is like. Somewhere around, I do this mailbag every week, and somewhere around week two or three, all of a sudden, I got all these mailbag questions about JSN. Why is he involved? And like, I would bet five. I took him in the sixth round, man. Cared about the Seahawks or JSN? It was I drafted this guy, and where's my production? So it does with skill positions. I think fantasy football really skews how we look at guys' kind of development and production. Yeah, yeah. Do you get a sense that there's any level of discouragement with JSN? No, I mean, I haven't seen it. I think the one clip people might have misinterpreted was that, you know, that when Gino was mic'd up and it was the clip was meant to show Gino Smith's leadership where he went and kind of picked him up on the sideline. But some people saw the body language and all that and didn't know the situation and thought, oh, he's sulking because he's not getting the ball. It was because Gino right. just threw a pick intended for JSN. That, yes. You know, Thank you. Jigba thought yeah. it, Gino Smith made it very clear that that was on him and he tried to force one in there. But in Jigba, for whatever reason, whether he did something wrong or just felt bad because he didn't get to the ball, he felt bad about that interception. So he's hanging yeah. his head there because he thought he cost the team possession, not because, right. oh, I'm not getting mine. Right. Yeah, man. And, you know, one of the things <laughs> we were talking a show or two ago about just the unbelievable quotable factor that Geno Smith has, not just the stuff <laughs> that you see in post-game interviews or the press conferences, but on the field. And whenever he's mic'd up, a consistent theme is him talking to other players about how well certain guys are playing. And he's like, I have to give them the ball. I have to reward them. He talked about it with Jake Bobo saying that guy is killing dudes out there. I got to get him the ball. And Mm -hmm. him talking to JSN in that clip and saying like, it's on me. I'm going to get it to you. That's on me. And I just, I really, really appreciate that. So, you know, it's, it's nice to have a quarterback who is aware of how important involvement and targets are to receivers, especially young receivers in terms of feeling like they're part of the offense and also just getting into rhythm. These playing in the NFL, it's not a microwave situation where you just put them in there and and they heat up. Like they have to feel out the game. They have to feel out these coverages. So I'm really, really excited to see where that goes. Yeah. Again, it's, I think he's going to be a really good player. It's just, they just got to get him going, but it's going to be fun whenever that happens. I, you know, Let's hope it's this week, but we'll see when it happens. But the, the big JSN game is coming, I'm pretty confident saying. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Uh, looking forward to this week, the Seahawks go to Cincinnati. They're going to face a Bengals team that, until yesterday, had probably been the biggest disappointment in the NFL relative to expectations. Yeah. And it, it's it's just the cascading effect of Joe Burrow's calf injury, right? I mean, every snap out of shotgun, it kills your uh, – it, it just takes running plays out of your – playbook and he's throwing the ball faster than any uh you know quarterback in the nfl because he can't get away from pressure and all of these things and then so defenses are just sitting on these quick routes and then last week he's out there 
He's manipulating the pocket. He had a 15-yard scramble for a first down, and then he just went ballistic through the air. Jamar Chase, absolutely nuclear, 15 catches, almost 200 yards, three touchdowns. This is a team that nearly won the AFC Championship last year and almost won the Super Bowl the year yeah. before that. When you look at this game, how do you see these teams matching up, and what's the most important thing Seattle needs to do to win? Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate for the Seahawks that it does seem like Joe Burrow and that in that offense kind of found something and are getting right. You you know, you were hoping you were going to get the three weeks ago version of the the Bengals offense have been struggling, but yeah, it's you know, it, I think it's going to be a great test. Another you know, you going on the road. I, I do love how well this team has played on the road and in early games, really for almost a decade now. That was always the biggest bugaboo for this team. But you used to look at that schedule and be like, oh, 10 a.m. games, that's a loss. And now they they go travel well. They like that sort of us against a roll mentality. So the road part of it doesn't really worry me too much anymore. But it's just that's a darn good Bengals team when they're right. And as you said, I mean, they've they've done a lot of things the last couple of years. Um, if you want to talk about like what's the one thing, I mean, I haven't dove that deep into the Bengals yet. It's Monday, but uh, to me, it's when you have a quarterback like that and a receiver, like you mentioned, Chase, it's just avoid those big plays. I mean, that's when we've seen the Seahawks defense struggle in recent years, it tends to be the teams that can just burn you, whether it's ripping off a long run or in this case, a receiver who, who makes big plays happen. So I love that the secondary looks to be getting right because I think the Seahawks secondary can can hold up well against just about anybody. But, you know, if you can cut back on all those big plays, I think you'll be in pretty good shape, but it's going to be a tough test. Yeah, I think it will be the biggest test for the secondary because there's lots of reasons to be excited. There's lots of reasons to think that, you know, as the season goes on, this is going to be one of the best defensive backfields in the NFL. And, you know, finally getting to see Tariq and... Uh, excuse me, Reek Woolen and Devin Witherspoon on the field at the same time. Uh, super exciting. But especially if T. Higgins comes back, he was kind of a game-time decision mm-hmm. this week. If it's him and Jamar Chase, it will be the biggest test, honestly, of the young careers of both Woolen and Witherspoon, I think. And get the pass rush continuing to get home is going to be everything yeah. to me on this game. Yeah, yeah. If they If they have to hold the ball at all and you can get that pass rush going, that's... I mean, that was massive, especially against quarterback who is not going to be 100% mobility-wise. Yep. You can't give him time because if he's got time to sit back there with those weapons, you're going to be in trouble. But I, if, I don't you know, care who you are. You're not covering Jamar Chase yeah, for five seconds. Exactly. Like, you can't. It, you can be the best cornerback in the world, but if a guy's got five seconds to throw get, with good receivers, they're going to make stuff happen. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe the biggest surprise for me so far this season has been the play of the defensive front because it was my biggest concern going in. I think it was most people's biggest concerns when it comes to this team, especially with the fact that they basically replaced the entire interior of that defensive line. They got smaller up front in terms of the guys who are actually getting yeah. the majority of the snaps. But Jaron Reed has been a revelation, uh, and I, I think he's okay. It looked like he kind of yeah, got leg-whipped a little bit in that like game. He's okay. He got, got banged in the shin or something. But Yeah. Pete... He made it sound like he's okay. Again, we'll see what happens today. But. Of course, of course. Uh, we're starting to see Draymond Jones find his role. And then, of course, you know, we're seeing these edge guys. Boy, Mafe's. I think Boye Mafe is like the second highest graded edge defender in the NFL. I'm not saying he's anywhere. Yeah, you know, I'm not taking him over. Or pass rush win rate. Is that what it was? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm not taking him over Miles Garrett or the Bosa's or TJ Watt or anything. But to see that level of production from him in his second year is super exciting and they're stopping the run. Like yeah. they have been as good, literally as good as any team in the NFL at stopping the run. And Cincinnati has not run the ball at 
all so far this year. So I do think that when Seattle's on defense, this game is going to be funneled through the pass for Cincinnati. Yeah. Yeah. And the run defense, I mean, that's, that was the big kind of Achilles heel this defense last year is they just had games mm-hmm. where teams were just gashing them on the ground. They finished 30th on run defense. So to flip it the way they have where opponents are averaging, I think it's 3.2 a carry. If you take away just Daniel Jones scrambling last week, it's 2.9 a carry for the season. So that's, I mean, that's elite run defense right there. When you do change it up front, like you said, you kind of wonder what that's going to look like. Obviously, getting Bobby Wagner back in there is a big damn deal. When when you talk around defense, he's helped a lot. So I was just going to say we haven't even mentioned Jordan Brooks yet, and he looked like he was back up to full speed finally uh, in that Giants game. Yeah, I mean that the comeback he had that's a whole nother conversation. But he was back in less than eight months from a torn ACL, which is just wild. But yeah, those two together, I mean, it's just they're they're playing really well together. It gives you two really high end linebackers in the middle of the field. So. Yeah, it's, you know, going back to what you said about the passing and the Bengals. I'm, you know, I never want to go into a game and be like, oh, this team doesn't run the ball, so they're not going to run it and just forget about the run because right. that's when you run into, you know, the the Raiders game last year. They they, <laughs> yeah, they came into yeah, that exactly. game, game planning for Devontae Adams and a passing attack and got run all over. So you can't neglect one thing, but if you look at the way the Seahawks have been playing run defense and the way the Bengals have not been running the ball, it certainly does look like, it's going to come down a lot to the the pass rush getting its job done and then the guys on the back end covering. On the offensive side, when you're playing against a team that can score as much and as quickly as Cincinnati can when they're right, do you think that this team's approach to that is, okay, we know that about our opponent's offense, so we are going to, A, try and lean on the run and shorten the game, keep them off field, or is it, we're going to need to score a lot of points. Let's be really aggressive and and try and also score quickly and, and keep pace. I, you know, I think a lot of this comes down to sort of Pete's mentality going into games of, I don't think he wants to let that dictate it. I think, I think they would rather go into it as like, here's our game plan. We're going to do it. And then if we need to adjust this game, like Pete Carroll is probably the least panicked person down 14 points at halftime. You will ever find in the NFL. Like not that you want that, but he's not going <laughs> to yeah. go like, Oh man, we're down 10 points, abandon the game plan, chuck it, chuck it, chuck it. Like right. he's always looking at us like, look, there's plenty of time, a lot of possessions left, get a stop in the third quarter, get a score we're right back in. So I don't think you go into it saying we need to match firepower with firepower or run the game. It's more like, how do we match up with that Bengals defense? What's our best way to succeed as an offense? And then as the game goes along, if you need to adjust because you're down, because something's not working, then you do so. But uh, I just don't think, you know, when Pete Carroll talks about, he wants his balanced offense. It's it's more about like not how many runs you have, but it's okay. What we go into a game with this plan, but if something's not working, we can lean on the pass game if the run game isn't going. If we can't throw it because it's crappy weather or they're just stopping it, we can lean on Walker in the run game. So I don't think they let that dictate it, but you do need to be kind of prepared for all scenarios against an offense potentially as explosive as the Bengals. Yeah, and we we talk about it on the show a lot, and I I've mentioned it a number of times in my articles that. Pete Carroll has long carried this reputation as run the damn ball, close the circle of toughness. And I I do think that is important to him. But to your point, I think it's more about having that option as opposed to saying like, this is how we have to win necessarily because for the last going on four seasons now, Seattle has been a top half team and sometimes as high as like a top eight team in terms of neutral situation pass rate. Yeah. Right. Like when, over the course of his career outside of like maybe young Russell Wilson, when you're running a lot of zone read, they've never been a like super. And there's, you know, stretches, I think it was 2018, but 
for the most part, over the course of his career, different coordinators, different quarterbacks, even Pete Carroll's been, you know, not at the top, but definitely in the kind of upper half of neutral passing. So I, I, that's always kind of been a misconception to him of yes, the run game matters to Pete and he wants to be able to run it and he wants to be physical and they love to be able to close out a game that way. But he is not afraid if the game calls for it to let his quarterback throw it a bunch. Yeah. You know, and, and as we zoom out from that game and kind of look down the road at the rest of the season, obviously the landscape is going to shift. There are going to be big injuries throughout the league that affect the prognoses of different teams. But look, the 49ers and the Eagles are the last two undefeated teams in the NFL, and they remain the class of the NFC so far this season. I think the only surprises there are maybe just how good the 49ers look, especially after obliterating the Cowboys last night, but also how the Eagles still haven't lost despite not looking their best. Like they haven't looked awesome. And they're still winning every single week. So oh, I say the Eagles are like that movie villain you you should have taken care of earlier when you had a chance. Because <laughs> yeah, like, exactly, yeah. w- when a team changes both coordinators and they're you know struggling early, and they still win them all. I shouldn't say struggling, but they're not at they have not been you know probably what they would call their best early, and they keep winning. Like that's such a dangerous team I to know. me when they're finding ways to win while still finding their way. And that's, you know, I think they're going to be team probably getting really good. Unfortunately for the Seahawks, probably by, you know, November, December, when they see them, that's probably going to be a team. Again, injuries can happen, but yeah, that's those two teams both look very dangerous, both short term and, and as the season goes along. Yeah. You know, at the top of the show, Mike and I were also talking about the NFC West is tougher than I think we all anticipated. Yeah. Certainly than I anticipated. I I knew the 49ers would be good. I did not expect them to be this good. I think they have a top two offense and a top one defense. (laughs) I remember in our season preview episode, we were just like, yeah, we don't need to spend a whole lot of time talking about the Rams or the Cardinals, but those are not going to be easy outs. I mean, we saw it firsthand in week one with the Rams. They have had a brutal stretch to start their season in terms of who they've played with you know, the Bengals and the 49ers and the Eagles. And even though they lost those three games, they gave those teams everything until late in the game. And, and, you know, their opponents kind of pulled away. The Cardinals were an absolute punchline coming into the season. A lot of us thought that uh, Jonathan Gannon was just over his head uh, with that team. They were, they were so broken I think uh, mentally and emotionally when Cliff Kingsbury was there and with no Kyler Murray, it just seemed like, well, at least they will be a doormat, but they look good too. Yeah. They're feisty. And I mean, I, I, you know, we got to see how things play out for them, but I, right now it looks like Gannon is doing a hell of a job because there are a lot of deficiencies Mm -hmm. on that team. Their quarterbacks hurt and they've just been, you know, if not, you know, in every game to the wire, they've made it hard on every opponent at some point throughout a game, they might fall behind, claw their way back in, take a lead, whatever it is, they've been a feisty team and they're, you know, they're doing a lot of things really well again without Murray so far. And he could be back. We don't know yet, but it's possible he's back by the time the Seahawks see him. And then the Rams look, I mean, first of all, I think Sean McVay has just always been a tough matchup for the Seahawks and made it hard on them. They are a very young team. And I think they probably have some depth concerns on that team in certain positions, but as long as you have Stafford playing at the level he is right now and now Cooper cup is back dude, and you got still an all world talent on defense and Aaron Donald, like that's enough right there 
to keep them competitive against a lot of teams. Stafford looks so good, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he looks he looks like the quarterback that won a Super Bowl. Yeah. I mean, it, going back to week one, like, look, the Seahawks could have done a lot of things a lot better in that game. So, like, not to make excuses there. But sometimes yeah. you also have to look at an opposing quarterback to be like, damn, he did a lot of things really well. Like, some of those throws were covered, and he just put it in a perfect spot. And yes, the way the NFL works, especially with the rules today, but just in general, like, sometimes a good offensive play will beat great coverage, good, you know, everybody doing their job. And there were some of those in that game. So hats off to him, too. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's still early, but from where we stand in early, mid-October, how do you feel like these Seahawks stand up, not only against San Francisco and Philadelphia, but compared to the rest of the conference? Yeah, I mean, look, right now, until they play those teams and show, like, we saw it last year, the 49ers beat the Seahawks three times, so you can't say they're on their level right now. They did a lot of things this offseason that they hope closed that gap, but we'll need to see how it plays out later this season when they play them a couple times, but I do think that, you know, again, when they start getting healthier on that offensive line and the offense gets closer to full strength, if the defense is, you know, building off what they did against the Giants and can can keep playing like that, again, not 11 sacks every week, but just playing at that high level, I do think they can be in the mix. And, you know, that we've all talked about it a ton, but that stretch of, what is it, week 12 through week 15 when they play the Niners twice, Cowboys and Eagles, like, that is going to shape so much. I think the Seahawks should be able to win quite a few games between now and then and be right in the playoff mix. But if you want to win the NFC West, you're probably at minimum going to have to split with the 49ers. And if they keep winning, you might have to beat them both times. So we'll see how it looks when they get there. I I don't think you can put the Seahawks quite on that level yet till they beat the 49ers because they got you last year. But I think they have closed the gap a little bit. And and that defense could be kind of the the X factor, if you will, of if the defense is really getting to where we think it can go, now I think you can put the Seahawks in that kind of upper echelon. Yeah, yeah, because after those two teams, it does feel pretty fluid. The Lions look awesome, Yeah, but Seattle beat the Lions yeah. in Detroit. Uh, the Cowboys have looked awesome against bad teams. I mean, they've looked like world beaters against bad teams, uh, but they lost to the Cardinals, and then they got their ass whooped by the 49ers. And then you've got... You know, a couple of the pretenders from last year that have fallen off. Giants and Vikings were playoff teams. Vikings won 13 games. Neither of them look like they're going to be factors this season. It does feel like, you know, unfortunately, one of those top two teams is in the division. It's going to be really difficult to win the NFC West this year as long as, honestly, as long as Brock Purdy's healthy because they're so deep everywhere else. I think the 49ers really can withstand injuries at just about any position outside of quarterback. But I feel like after those two, there's nothing keeping me from saying the Seahawks can't be that top wildcard team and nothing that says they can't be the third best team in the conference when the regular season is over. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I mean, obviously being home for the playoffs would be awesome and that's still the goal. But even if you're in that upper wildcard where you're maybe not having to go play those top teams right away, you get a chance to, to get some things going. So Again, I I think this team would still tell you the NFC West is their goal, and they know it's a steep goal because the 49ers are really darn good, but you do get to play them twice, so we'll we'll see what happens when we get later in the season. But I, I think the Seahawks have definitely taken some steps and gone from where they were, you know, a, barely a playoff team last year to where they think they can be in that kind of upper tier of the NFC this year. Yeah, man. Well, <laughs> like you mentioned throughout the show, I mean, we touched on some things that could be their own entire episodes, and... We know how much you have on your plate as this team rolls into the rest of their season. So we really, really appreciate you taking the time to come chop all this up with us today. Uh, Of course. Thanks for having me. Of course. Of course. And before we go, where can the listeners find more of you? 
Uh, well, you know, you can find everything on Seahawks.com. Obviously, that's where all the written stuff goes. Twitter is, or are we X now? I, I still call it Twitter, but at John P. Boyle. It's still Twitter, man. Yeah, it's still Twitter. Yeah, at John P. Boyle. That's the worst rebrand of all time. <laughs> Speaking of things, we could do a whole podcast on. <laughs> yeah, man. It's still Twitter. John P. Boyle on Twitter. There you go. Got, we appreciate uh, it, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, and uh, let's do it again soon. All right, friends, that's going to do it for today. As always, you can find Mike and I on social media as well. I am on Twitter at, at Jackson Bevins. That's J-A-C-S-O-N. Remember that no K is okay when spelling my name. Mike is on Twitter at, at Mike Barwin, and the show itself is at Cigar Thoughts. You can catch full video episodes on our YouTube channel at, at Cigar Thoughts and find the rest of our socials at CigarThoughtsNFL.com. Of course, you can listen to this show and read every article at fieldgoals.com slash cigar thoughts. And if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you like the show, drop us a five-star rating and leave a quick review. Finally, be sure to check out cigarthoughtsnfl.com to get your exclusive Cigar Thought cigars or hit me up on Twitter and I'll shoot you the deets. When you buy those cigars, reach out, tell us what you think. Thank you to all of y'all listening for your continued support of the show. You know you've only got so much time for podcasts in your life and it's an honor to be a part of that for y'all. Please know that by sharing this show on social media and with your friends, you give us the juice to keep making it happen. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, onwards and upwards, my friends. Mm-hmm.